Well, again, let me say a warm welcome and how good it is to see you. And there's some seats at the front if you want a better view. And there are some seats behind pillars if you want a worse view. So everyone should be happy. I'm going to talk in this first talk about when Jesus opens our eyes. When Jesus opens our eyes, what do we see? And in a moment, uh, we'll look at a very familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of us, if not all of us, from John chapter 4. When the year 2019 was coming to an end, there was probably hardly a vicar in the country that didn't try and cash in on the idea that the following year, 2020, could be linked with the idea of 2020 vision. So I'm sure I was one of, you know, thousands of vicars, if there are thousands of vicars, who put together a sermon series for January, February, March, April on 2020 vision in 2020. And of course, the first four weeks in January, it all worked fine. And then the first UK recorded case of COVID was the 31st of January, 2020, and the scripts had to be ripped up. Because so far as I know, no one had the foresight in 2019 to see what was coming around the corner. And, and since then, our perspective has changed, all of us. And how we view the world has shifted. It, it's almost like a new BC and AC, before COVID and after COVID. And of course, we're not out of it yet. And how we view the scriptures has changed too. Scripture has this amazing uh, God-given power and authority, doesn't it? And at different times, different parts spring to life. And at different times, even familiar passages take on a new look. And I think we'll discover that this morning as we look at this familiar passage of John chapter 4. Now, if you have a Bible handy, you can turn to it. I'll read the beginning bit of it at least. Um, if I see you looking at your phone, I shall assume you're looking at scripture. And if I see you texting, I shall assume you're writing notes. So all is well. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, 
as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Now, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain but you Jews claim that a place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Well, we're going to look at this very familiar passage from a number of different perspectives. And the very first one is from the perspective of the Samaritan woman. And I'm going to begin with a story, a true story. And actually, the story really makes the point I want to make about the Samaritan woman. It's a story of a domestic incident that took place in just a, a very ordinary family. And um, I don't know how they got into this situation, but the dad was larking around with his children and they were having a pillow fight. And it was all going really well, relatively speaking, until it was sort of like in slow motion and the father took one great swipe at his daughter, missed the daughter, and instead, the pillow connected with this china horse on a kind of mantelpiece. And the father watched as a china horse, his daughter's very favorite thing in the room, seemed in slow motion to lose its balance, head towards the floor and crash into a number of fragmented pieces. And the pillow fight stopped and there was this horrific sort of moment. And everyone knew that a catastrophe had happened. And the dad didn't know really what to do and started to collect all the different bits to shove them in the bin. And the little girl stopped him and through her tears looked at him in the face and, and said, don't throw it away. Just because it's broken doesn't mean I can't love it. Ouch. <laughs> there you are, perhaps you don't need to hear any more and you can go home now. Just because it's broken doesn't mean I can't love it. 
And that's very much at the heart of this story, isn't it? I, I know this story is often plundered. I've done it myself for lots of tips about how to do evangelism and everything else. But, but right at the heart of this story is the standout. Don't miss the main and the plain. The standout. Jesus saying really effectively, just because you're broken doesn't mean I can't love you. And the Samaritan woman is beyond question a broken woman. The clues are all there before she engages in the conversation. And it's very apparent when she does engage in the conversation by how prickly and passive aggressive she is. Turns out it's not just mad dogs and Englishmen that go out in the midday sun. It's mad dogs and Samaritan women too. And the reason that she's out there in the midday sun, in the heat of the day when no one else is drawing water, is because of the kind of woman she is. To call her a loose woman is an understatement. As Jesus draws out of her or just tells her to her face, she's been married five times already. And according to the commentaries that I was looking at in preparation, uh, this is twice over the odds. Apparently, in Jewish law, you are allowed to uh, get married three times. Uh, if you were made a, a widow, for example, it was your brother-in-law who stepped in to fill the breach if he was unmarried, etc., etc. Now, that could happen apparently three times. So this woman's been married five times. And the man that she's with right now isn't her husband. She, her, her private life is in pieces. Put judgment aside for one moment about her private life and think what it does to a person's sense of self-worth to be in so many broken relationships. Imagine what her inner security was like having lived through that. Is it any surprise that she should be so angular when this stranger man starts talking to her. In fact, so downright rude, really. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? It's hardly complimentary and warm and welcoming, is it? And you can see, and I can see, shame and lack of confidence and wariness and defeatism and lack of self-worth. They're all part of her daily diet. The rejection by her friends, that's why she's on her own. And when the disciples get back on the scene in verse 27, they don't say anything that brings healing to the moment. They make it really clear she's the wrong sex, the wrong race, the wrong kind of track record. What are you doing talking to a woman? What are you doing talking to that woman? Is what they say. Her head is down, her hopes are down, her life is hard. And Jesus says to her, if only you knew if only you knew who it is that you're talking to, you could have asked him and he would have given you living water. If only you knew who's in front of you today and what you could ask him for. You could have asked him, if only you knew the gift of God. Personally, God is interested in this woman. He's not just interested, 
he's gone out of his way for her, to reach out and find her. How do I know that? Well, I know that from verse 4 at the beginning of the passage. Well, in verse 3 it says, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. But actually, he didn't have to go through Samaria. If you look at a map to get from Judea to Galilee, you don't have to go through Samaria. And most Jews would not have gone through Samaria because relationships were so poor between those two races or tribes or whatever you want to put it, however you want to put it. But there is a sense in which Jesus does have to go through Samaria, and that's simply this. If he's going to meet the woman, he has to go through Samaria. So he had to go through Samaria because it was in God's master plan the two of them should meet. That's what God's love is like. That, I think, actually is a good definition of mission. Love that goes out of its way. And here is Jesus' love going out of its way. And here's the second thing to notice about the encounter between the two of them. He knows everything there is to know about her. It's transparently obvious that he sees right through her and he knows by the Holy Spirit. He has words of knowledge aplenty, doesn't he? Go and get your husband. I haven't had a husband. No, you're right. You've had five of them and the chap you're shacked up with, he's not your husband either. He sees right through what's going on. And he loves her. We sometimes pray a prayer, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And that's true for us. Why am I talking about this now? Because I think as we come out of lockdown, who hasn't taken a battering? Individually, and it isn't just people like me who have experienced being on a life support machine. It's all of us, all of us, I think without exception. We are not the people we were two years ago. We all carry scars, whether you've been able to identify them or not. PTSD, for many, is a reality. It's not just NHS workers. Mental scars is a reality for so many, not just people struggle with living alone or families with tension under one roof, or people whose dreams have been dashed. And from a Christian, keeping calm and carrying on doesn't even begin to cut it. That's not the solution. If you knew who it is that was talking to you, said Jesus, you would have asked him, and he would have fill in the dots. And it's not just individuals that have taken an almighty hit. It's churches too, congregations up and down the land. And St. Michael's is not an exception to the rule. We carry the scars of COVID as well. I went to a meeting of local ministers just last week. There weren't many of us there, four of us. And... I had three people spoke before me and I was in a way um, reassured by what they said because it, it, what the, the picture they were painting was exactly the same as our picture here. But it's not a pretty picture. It's a picture of a body with scars. 
confidence is down, self-confidence of individuals, and the combined confidence. The sense we're in a recuperation period. We are. It's no point just pretending we're not. We, we are. If there's a word that I think summarizes it for many of us, depleted is a good word. Personally, individually, and together. Right across the spectrum, after being closed in lockdown, people, life has changed in so many obvious ways. People have moved to the country. So if you're in London, you feel, you feel it. The rhythms of life have been bulldozed. People have shifted to online participation. For most of us, that was the only option going for months. And so physical participation in church has just plummeted like a stone. And, and it's not just lorry drivers who are scarce and can't deliver. Within the church community, there is a scarcity. You might say, listening to you talk, Rupert, there's no gas shortage at any rate, but there we go. And, and I, I'm pointing this out not to depress us, but to say, look, we rebuild from where we are. We rebuild from where we are. And you will notice in the coming weeks that a lot of what St. Michael's got, was used to doing has been scaled back. And it's not because of a policy decision that this is hugely preferable. It, it's just the reality of our situation, the scarcity of resources. But we will rebuild. But we go back to God. What I don't want to get away from is, if we're going to rebuild, the first thing we've got to do is mend. There's no point in asking us to make bricks without straw. You know, just do more, do more, everything will be fine. It won't. If you're feeling clobbered and frayed at the edges and fragile, and that is how most people feel, then we've got to attend to it and bring ourselves into the orbit of Jesus and answer the question he asks us. So what would you have me do for you? We can't just bury this stuff and think all will be well, because it won't. But we can support one another. How will you answer it when Jesus says, what would you have me do for you? And I know, just before you tell me, <laughs> I know he's not Father Christmas. I know that God's not a slot machine. Uh, but he is compassionate. And he is our Heavenly Father. And I don't think there's a single area of our lives that we need to hide from him. And I suspect that he is hearing prayers up and down the country, which are very real at this point, on people talking about my finances are broken, my job has disappeared, my confidence is shot, my marriage is in trouble. And there is a verse in scripture that says you don't have because you don't ask. And we should ask. Along with that, yes, we have to take our own responsibility for our own bad decisions that might have landed us in some of the mess we're in just like this woman would have had to do. But we shouldn't hide. Let's switch, let's switch our perspective from the woman to the disciples. And the disciples come out of this encounter badly. Have you noticed that? If this talk is called Open Your Eyes, then one would have to say that the disciples really fail their eyesight test. Now, I've been to lots of opticians for eyesight tests. I have had in the past a detached retina in my right eye. Right eye. 
I have an ongoing eye condition, so I know about eyesight tests, but I've never done as badly as the disciples. Who, when they begin their eyesight test, Jesus says, you've got your eyes shut. Open your eyes. I mean, if you went to the optician, sat in front of a screen, and they said, I don't think you're doing very well, step one is open your eyes, you, you would think, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I have to do that. It, it was a bad, bad place for them to begin with Jesus saying, open your eyes. And this is one of those stories in John 4 where we, the reader, are aware of what's going on in a way the disciples are not. So we are aware this incredible, marvelous, joy-filled conversation has been going on between Jesus and the broken woman. And we're aware that she is coming to know the Messiah as her friend and savior and Lord. And we are aware that revival is just around the corner. Within half a page of your Bible, the whole of the city is going to become followers of Jesus, thanks to the woman. And so, you know, we're on message now with what Jesus is up to. And the disciples are totally not. Their eyesight is on the takeaway falafel, cucumber and fish sandwich they brought for Jesus from the local deli. And they say to him, come on, you know, let's eat. We've been and got you the food. And what's happened in the disciples' life? They've lowered their sights already. In the very early days, being close to Jesus was one huge adventure. And the lifetime of challenging results was everywhere to be seen. So there was Andrew, do you remember, who went and fetched his brother, Simon, and there was Simon's mother-in-law who was healed, and there was Nathaniel who was sitting underneath a fig tree. Then there was the surprise of who Jesus would call next, and he would call a tax collector here and a couple of revolutionary zealots over there, and the exuberant Peter and the lugubrious Thomas, and they were heady days, yeah? But alongside these highlights, they're just coming to discover this is proving hard work. This is very unpredictable and rather uncomfortable because this man Jesus just won't stay still. He keeps pushing on into unpromising territories and it's all becoming a bit much and the disciples are tired out. And Jesus was tired too. At the beginning of his story, he sat down by the well. Isn't this a place we know well? Doesn't this come to us at some point when you're following Jesus? (laughs) You just want to sit down and you just want to go and get the fish and chips and talk about that instead. When weariness sets in, your vision will be distorted. When weariness sets in, watch out. Because there's an inevitable pull to hunker down and look down, to retreat, to find a place of shelter. And the disciples are showing that kind of behavior, not for the first time or the last time. And what they're doing here, which is not good news, is they've shrunk God's vision to fit their landscape. They've cropped it, basically, to fit what they feel they can do, rather than align their horizons to what God wants. They've reset. And so they come back saying, what are you doing talking to that woman? That's not really the right approach for sharing the gospel. (laughs) So question, who do we most resemble? Jesus, whose focus is on the Samaritan woman, or the disciples who are looking at the sandwiches? 
And it is a surprise that if Jesus commissioned us to go and share the gospel and he commissioned them with the whole world, is it a surprise that we're going to get tired? It looks to me like that's rather a big task for just 12 people or for just however many we are. So it's going to take perseverance and grit. I rather like Winston Churchill's definition of success. Going from one failure to another with no apparent loss of enthusiasm. That's sort of the life story of a disciple to some extent. But Jesus has a different way of dealing with it than just downing tools. Here's the second thing. When you're weary, don't just watch out. Look out. Look out. Jesus sat at the well and he looked and he saw the woman and he saw someone to have a conversation with. Now, I'm just going to make a big point very briefly. There's there's often never a good time to have a conversation about Christ. They're intrusive into your diary. It just doesn't work for most of us that we kind of put in our diary (laughs) Thursday, 20 minutes to wander around Sloan Square to look for someone that's lost and have a conversation about Christ. It just doesn't tend to work like that. It's, It's sort of like lining up an important conversation with your young children. If you've got young children, you discover they want to talk to you at the worst possible times. It's a gift that comes with having children. But on the other hand, there's never a bad time to have a conversation about Christ. There's never a moment when it isn't good when someone gives you an opportunity. And I want to share just a number of encouragements for us from this story about why we keep going with this idea of sharing the mission God's given to us. Five encouragements, I think, to keep reaching out so that this talk isn't all depressing. It's actually got some hope in it. Number one, mission is at the heart of God's vision. Mission is at the heart of God's vision. God's vision is mission-minded. He's behind all of this. He's not just behind it, he's in front of it too. Go into all the world and make disciples. That's the Great Commission. Has God changed his mind? No. So when we align what we're up to at St. Michael's, when we align what we're doing in our private life and our everyday world with the idea of sharing God with other people, we don't actually have to have a crisis of confidence. Are we doing what God wants us to do? Because we know that we're doing what God wants us to do. And we know that he's at the, at the front, back, and middle of this mission. Verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. I love that. So actively, God is walking around London, walking around everywhere, actively seeking people who will worship him in spirit and truth. It turns out that that bumper sticker that you sometimes see, Carpenter Seeks Joiners, is true that's true and when we push on and reach out we know that we're doing what God is asking us to do so when we have a carol service as we will do one big carol service candlelit service here in church on December the 12th and we make it a guest service and it's specially geared singing familiar carols with a very user-friendly high content low cringe talk about Jesus we know that we are doing what God the Father wants us to be doing. You know um, that occasionally the government will have a meeting of the COBRA committee. I wonder if you know what COBRA stands for. 
stands for the Cabinet Office Briefing Rooms. And you know, they, they work out what to do in a crisis. And I wonder what happens in heaven when they have a meeting of a WASP committee. That, that's the Word and Spirit Committee. And, and I can't work out whether it's a three-person committee or a three-in-one committee, but you can work that out. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit get together. And when they hear, oh, they're praying at St. Michael's, they've got an evangelistic carol service, should we support them? Well, let's put it to the debate. Father, what do you think? Son, what do you think? Holy Spirit, are we on message for this one? <laughs> they don't need to waste time having a committee because they've already decided and commissioned and sent us out to do it. it, it it's part of a rations. It, it's part of what's meant to happen. That's why they have this divine encounter. You know, God and the three, the Trinity have sorted things out so that Jesus walking through Samaria and this woman at the well, a Samaritan woman with a broken life, they meet at 12 o'clock. It was on, in the diary since before the creation of the world. Hot dog. <laughs> Good news. Later on in small groups, three, here's a warning, here's a spoiler alert. Three people in each of the groups who are going to be sitting around these tables. Three people in each of the groups are going to have a chance to share your story of how God arranged it that you came to know him. And I am sure there will be really encouraging stories because God has decided from eternity who he's going to save. And we're part of that story. And when we have, when we have a, an event like this carol service, it's not like herding cats, you know. It's not like you try and get together people and you drag them in through the door through gritted teeth and they just look thoroughly miserable. If God is on the case, it's not like that at all. It's like welcoming a hungry people to a banquet. It's, it's come in and smell the coffee and they, they want to come. That, that's, that's what it's to be like. So that's the first encouragement is mission is in the heart of God's vision. Secondly, encouragement, God will do more than you ask or imagine. God will do more than you ask or imagine. Have you discovered this yet? There is no predicting who God will bring into his kingdom. Have you discovered that? Okay, I, I want a bit of audience participation. Um, so I would have to put my hand up and I'd be interested to see how many others would. At the time I became a Christian, pretty much all my friends thought I was 100% unlikely ever to become a follower of Christ. You know, just kind of off the page, impossible to reach. Is there anyone else like that? Looking back, your friends were just so surprised. I'm the only one. Apart from <laughs> There's one other. There's one other who, whose hand just crept up for a nanosecond. You, you can't predict. I can't predict. Running through my head, I'm thinking immediately of two people. That if you'd asked me on a hit list of, of how many percent chance of them becoming a Christian, two people I just thought would never, ever, ever become a Christian. And they have. And they've stuck it. God is able to do far more than you ask or imagine. One of my favorite verses is tucked away in 1 Samuel 14, 6. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. 
Would you, would you be able to pray with me? Why couldn't you pray with me that we will see God convert some really unlikely people through what they hear and encounter here? Okay, encounter, encouragement number three. Every life matters and makes a difference. Every life matters and makes a difference. And one life can change an entire village. The task of evangelism looks huge because it is huge, but you never know the difference one life can make. This woman in John chapter four, the outcast one moment, by the end of a chapter, the people uh, that she lives with knows are all followers of Jesus. Quite a familiar story now because it's an illustration that's used on the Alpha course, but it's about a man called Albert McMakin, who was 24 years old and he was a farmer. And he recently had come to faith and he was really full of enthusiasm and he tried to take people to an outdoor evangelistic meeting in America. So he, he took a truck and the first night they went to hear this evangelist and that was fine. But there was a very good looking farmer's son apparently and he was especially keen to get him to a meeting. But he was very hard to persuade. And um, this young guy seemed to be always falling in love, apparently, with all different girls, and he didn't seem very attracted to Christianity. But Mr. McMakin was an enterprising fellow and said to him, um, would you mind driving my truck to the meeting? And this man did, and it was in 1934. Since that day, the person who was the truck driver has spoken to 210 million people in person about the Christian faith. He's spoken to nine American presidents uh, and he's spoken to so many more through television and films. That was Billy Graham. That was Billy Graham. We just have no idea of the impact that we could have by inviting one person. Here's a fourth encouragement. It takes a team to reap a harvest. Jesus says to that disciples in verse 37, thus goes the saying, one sows and another reaps, and it's true. I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And friends, I think this point is often not made well enough. And one of the reasons that we get turned off and go introverted and any talk of sharing our faith is because we quite rightly self-identify. We say, look, I'm, not, I'm just not one of those guys. Uh, you know, I, I have never, as it were, led someone over the line, been there in the room when they have said, I want to give my life to Christ. And that's probably true for the majority of people. But you need to step back and realize this, it's a team game. And most of our stories, I'm convinced, involve many, many people over long periods of time, a conversation here, an act of kindness there, a church service there, an encounter with God there. It, it takes place over time. And Jesus says that. Evangelism is a team game. One sows, another reaps. It's true. And just as you know you smell a rat if someone says, oh, I'm a really good footballer, but I don't play in a team. If someone says that to you, you should be clocking, you're no kind of footballer at all. 
and not even on the pitch. Or I'm a great cricketer, but I'm not in a team. Or I'm a great Christian, but I don't go to church. It's like, you're not a great Christian. You're a rubbish Christian. You're not even part of a team. You've signed yourself off. And what we are as a team, though, is more than the sum of the parts. I was talking to a friend just in the last 10 days who's a retired head teacher. And, and he, he was just telling us a story, a true story, about how um, he's long retired. He's in his 90s. And he, he said, you know, last week I had a, a phone call from one of my ex-students. He's now a grown man in his 60s, he said, and he, he wanted to see me, and he looked me up, tracked me down, and he came to visit me here in my retirement. And he told me the most amazing story, and this was the story he told. He said, um, I wonder if you remember, Martin. He said, you won't remember, for sure you won't remember. But he said, I've come to tell you what I remember, that when I was 18 and leaving that school, it was the time when all the different houses, because it was that kind of a school where the pupils were divided into houses, they were all having a leaving party for their prefects. And he said, I was not a prefect. I felt incredibly left out. And I was so cheesed off that I, I went for a walk. And it was quite late at night, like 11 o'clock at night, and there I was walking outside, and you came out of your house where you were housemaster, and you called me to you and said, what are you doing? And I explained the situation. And you said to me, well, come and join us. And it turned out that you were having a celebration in your house, and you invited me in. And he said, I'm here to tell you as a 60-something-year-old that come and join us has become my life motto. And whenever I meet people, I am always saying to them, come and join us. And my friend Martin said, you know, as he told me this, he, he just broke down in tears. And Martin said, I didn't remember. I didn't remember. But even as he was telling me that story, I thought, you know, um, that should be our story. That, that should be our story. Not just at an evangelistic carol service, but every day, and actually particularly every Sunday, Come and join us. And, and I want to put a challenge to you. Is that our story? On a Sunday, when people walk in here, do they feel everything that we're doing is really signaling, come and join us? And, and friends, I don't think it is. I'm your vicar, and I haven't always felt, come and join us, is the theme tune of St. Michael's. And, and I'm not criticizing you, I'm just saying, that's fine, this is where we start from. And we're, we're, as I began this talk, you know, we're all somewhat frayed at the edges because of COVID, and there are thousands of very valid excuses why we might want to huddle together. But it's more important than ever that we say, come and join us. And we view everything, everything that we're up to through that lens. And I want to encourage you because Actually, small things make a big difference. And over the long passage of time, you might find that this one act of kindness will make a big difference. I, it happens that last week I, I went to a meeting um, at Soul Survivor Church in Watford. And um, the guy talking was starting to tell a story about a man called Ben. 
And um, he was very excited because Ben and his wife had become full-on Christians and had been um, really walking the walk now for about 18 months. And in the middle of sharing this exciting story about Ben, he suddenly looked at me and he said, Rupert, actually, I've just remembered it was at your house 15 years ago that I first met Ben when he was a student and you, you had him to lunch. I had absolutely no idea that 15 years later this man would become a Christian. And it was just one more lunch amongst many lunches. You and I have absolutely no idea what one act of kindness can do. The point I'm making is it takes a team and we can be part of the team. And my last encouragement is this, it's God who changes lives. Ultimately, it's him. It's not your cleverness, it's not my cleverness, it's not whether I give a good talk or a bad talk, it's not whether you're on form that day or obnoxious that day, it's God who changes lives. It, it's him. He can make himself known. They said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the saviour of the world. But I've got to end this talk, but the last perspective, which you would point out to me if I didn't point out to you, is what did Jesus see? What did Jesus see that day? He saw a broken world. He saw a broken world. That's what he saw every day. He saw a broken world that he came to bring love to. He saw a broken world that he couldn't love more. He saw broken lives that he came to heal. That's why he came. I don't think he was surprised. What does Jesus see today? Nothing that surprises him. I was taken by surprise with COVID, but he wasn't. He's not looking at us and thinking, oh dear, my poor old church, look how battered and bruised it is. Better rewrite the plan. Not at all. As, as we rise from our present situation, we are more and more and more going to be seen as the light of the world. Part of his solution to the brokenness that there is. Part of the healing that God wants to bring. Part of the hope that he's come to share. And it's not just going to be through grit, gritted teeth and brute force. It's Holy Spirit help. It's if only you knew, you would have asked and he would have given living waters. And he will, if we'll ask.